Welcome to another episode of Urban Life Enabled, Enerhub's podcast for sharing news, views and stories about connecting, activating and measuring urban life in our public places and spaces. My name is Adam Beck and I'll be with you for the next little while as we unpack another topic relevant to enabling urban life. So let's go. In this episode of the Urban Life Enabled podcast, I have a conversation with James Strutt, who's Director of Strategy at New South Wales Department of Planning and Environment in the Homes, Property and Development space. Prior to this, he was Corporate Development Manager at Sirius Minerals and spent time in mergers and acquisitions with investment banker Credit Suisse. James and I discuss, I suppose broadly, the topic of plan tech, something that we're going to be exploring and unpacking more on this podcast. We hope you enjoy it. James, right. thanks so much for joining us on the Urban Life Enabled podcast. Delighted to have another government representative join us. You have been described by others to me of having a bit of a unique role in sort of the intersection of business and planning and digital and data. Uh, I am intrigued. I'd love to start by getting a quick overview of sort of what your day job is these days. And in particular, we're going to be touching on and referencing a, a platform and product known as Land IQ. If you could sort of give us give us an overview of that as well, that would be great. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Adam. And yeah, look, thanks for the opportunity to be here as well. Um, yeah, so look, I guess my role is pretty unique. Um, you know, originally I, I'm within the Department of Planning um, for New South Wales government, and I've got a very much a whole of government role when it comes to working with the other sectors, whether that's health or transport or education, and looking at their portfolio of assets and understanding how do we optimise the use of that, that land or that property? Um, where do we need to adaptively reuse? And through the time that I've been in government, which is nearing on a decade now, I realised we're doing a lot of slow manual-based processes around the analytics that we were doing to support the, that work. And that really led to, I guess, what's now called Land IQ, which is something we've, we've developed both in-house and with a couple of, of private sector partners being Giraffe and WSP. And really what that's trying to do is, is trying to take the smarts and, and data and analytics around looking at potential impacts of different changes in land use for government property and what might that mean? And not just from a financial perspective, but looking at social and economic and environmental factors as well. And so what I've, I guess, been able to do in, in my role is intersect that, I guess, working directly with, with parts of government with then the data and the digital and making sure those two have a feedback loop as well so that one's informing the other as they, as they evolve. It, it sort of sounds like smarter decision-making, improving the process. These are all things that the concept of plan tech talks about as well, where practitioners and policymakers can embrace as much as possible digital and data tools. Can you tell us a little bit about that idea of better decisions, faster decisions, and is there any sense of realizing that yet? How long has this been going for? So uh, I think the short answer is, is yes. Um, it is still quite young in terms of the, the the tool itself, Land IQ. But maybe if we just take a step back and just think about how, how big the size of the prize here in New South Wales is. So uh, I very much come from a New South Wales government land perspective. Um, land IQ actually does operate across any land ownership type, but the state government owns a portfolio about the size of Germany. Um, so yeah, it, wow. it is a huge portfolio that's a bit under half the state. 
And, you know, in my time, there's about as many different methodologies and approaches to looking at land use as there are people that are working across that side of the portfolio. And if you think about where that all ends up, it all funnels up to a common place, whether that's you call that the government or treasury or whatever you want to call it. But someone is making those capital allocation decisions on, you know, 100 plus different methodologies to essentially the same bit of work. So where I think the niche that Land IQ is filling is um, it's trying to provide a standardized way of picking up data and analyzing that data so that when it gets to that endpoint, you're able to really compare those apples with apples. And I think LandoQ has been online for about 18 months now, I'd say, very much still a pilot version. But what we're starting to see is more and more agencies are starting to use it in their day-to-day workflows. I think the maturity curve probably has a little bit way to go in terms of the adoption of that, but we're already getting the feedback from Treasury and the likes of those people who are, I guess, at the decision-making end. They're starting to see some of that consistency coming through. And I think probably just the other point to make is oftentimes the time it takes to get to that decision, whether that's an agency doing that work in-house or going through multiple procurements and back and forth, we often talk about the planning system being, you know, at the back end and we need to make these decisions fast. We've got a DA, we've got a proposal in. But the bulk of the time actually takes place up front. When you're identifying an opportunity or an issue, you're looking at options, you're planning it out. Uh, and so where Land IQ is condensing that time frame is really that front end. And so you're able to get to the proposal process much, much quicker. And that's sort of where we're starting to see some of the benefits um, go through. So in terms of capability of Land IQ, if I can just sort of unpack that a little bit, we have a platform, and correct me when and if I'm wrong here, but you've created sort of a platform, a single pane of glass, where predominantly at the moment you're bringing disparate data assets and disparate data sets together so that you can see a more fuller picture of what's been happening and possibly, you know, unlocking some of those siloed data assets, you know, historically, would you describe that as the core function or does it go beyond that? Are you activating data? Is there analytics assessment? Talk us through that. Sure. So it is activating that data. Absolutely. And so if you think about what are the different other, I guess, similar but related platforms across the government here, you've got the, the spatial digital twin and the work that the Department of Customer Service is doing, and you've got e-planning as well. And I think they, they serve very uh, useful and, and, I guess, direct purposes around spatial information, whether it's planning related or just general spatial information for the government. What Land IQ does, it, it pulls that in, so it pulls in the data that's being used so we're not duplicating or re-posting you know, posting information, but then it, it does stuff with that data, which really, I guess, lowers the technical capability threshold for the average user to use. Mm. So you don't need to be a GIS specialist that's done a four-year degree. You, know, you don't need to be a PhD in data science, whatever it might be. So um, the way it does that, I guess, we, we have a few different apps, we call them, within Land IQ. Um, to make them familiar, I guess, with people yeah. who have phones and the like. Uh, but one of them is called Site Search. And this, this is probably the one that's being adopted the most um, across the sector at the moment. And think about it as we've crunched a whole lot of data against every single lot in the cadastre in the state, like a huge amount of data. So the use case for that could be I'm education and I'm looking for a site for a school in this new catchment. I can very quickly look at all the different options and identify based on my school parameters and it will give me rankings, it will weight it, it will show me the risks and it all automates that process based on what I put in. The other side of that is understanding an area. So I could be looking at a precinct, I could be looking at a new transport corridor and looking at options. It will very quickly show you the attributes of that land within those corridor, within that precinct. 
And so, you know, I guess how that would have happened in the past is, you know, someone that's on the, I guess, the service planning line or that side of the, of the agency, they'll send a request off to either their GIS team or to a consultant to get something back in, you know, six to eight weeks or whatever that time frame is. Right? The ability to be able to do that quickly on the spot and as when you need it, it really federates that capability across government. And not to say that we're trying to, you know, replace jobs with the, the, the technicians, but it's, I guess, allowing them to spend their time on the high value stuff, right? And allowing some of this more optioneering or, you know, blue sky thinking stuff to happen at every level across the sector. And I think that's, that's really been an eye opener for us in terms of who we are targeting as the users of, of the tool. So it sounds like your pilot version, your early work so far, it's only been 18 months, which is, which is pretty short period of time, seems to have focused around land use information and data. Is it safe to say that your this platform, LandIQ, doesn't discriminate against data and technically at any point in time, any moment now or in the future, you could certainly roll this out into sort of other you know, kind of thematic areas, you know, above and beyond just land use data, would that be a safe assumption? Yes, yes, it would. And I think, you know, if you think about it, it is fundamentally a spatial platform. And one of the things I always say to people when they ask me about my job is, you know, everything has to happen somewhere. Right? Mm. And now whether that's purely looking at it from a land use planning perspective, or we're getting actually a few use cases at the moment around climate risk and, and resilience. And again, that probably ties back to, in a way to land use planning because a lot of this stuff does but um you know absolutely that the, the user base isn't just about the planners it isn't just about the property people there's very much an environmental user base that we have at the moment um treasury are very keen on it from a risk perspective around that mm. around climate risk and 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 the like so um absolutely but again it's all spatial it all relates to spatial related information it's just depending on the the user we're getting a very broad range of use cases coming through James, I'm sitting here in Brisbane chatting to you and Southeast Queensland is currently going through a regional plan refresh. The state government is doing that. And with my sort of planner hat on, I'm, I'm trying to work out how more broadly outside of sort of the New South Wales government and the various teams you're working with, how would something like this you know, intersect with those broader regional planning processes. I mean, New South Wales has, you know, in the last decade spent a lot of uh, a lot of sweat equity in creating regional plans and three city plans, and there's been a lot of planning going on. I can certainly see land assets, building assets, portfolio management, you're describing a very powerful tool for some really core use cases. Does the idea of regional planning possibly change in the future as we see more tools like this come to market, whether it be with the public sector or private sector? Can you share mm. any crystal ball sort of glimpses that you, you've had, you know, during your time in sort of creating this? Yeah, so I've got probably... Couple of points I'll I'll um, respond to on that one. The first is I guess like I guess the tool itself specifically. You know we've really set it up at the moment to be, I guess operating at quite a granular level. Um, so if you think about whether it's a an individual lot, property, precinct, that's sort of the scale that it's currently working on. 
we've actually got a roadmap at the moment and probably number one or two is is moving that from i guess that lot level or, or site level and moving it up to more lga region and being able to make it more of a macro-based analytical tool now the, the, obviously the challenges with that is being an online platform you know performance is something that has to be taken into account in terms of um, how much data is being crunched and so there's an element there of simplifying it so that it works at that at that scale but we're hearing it from so many people. It's at the top of the list for us at the moment around how do you simplify it enough so that it's fast, but have it still produce results that are meaningful. And so that's the first point. I think the second point is, you know, you said you're in Brisbane. Um, great to hear. I'm, I'm a Brisbane boy originally. Uh, but I think one of the one of the things that we're really exploring at the moment with our, our partners, WSP and Giraffe, is, you know, really this is something that could be replicated across other jurisdictions. And we want to get it right in New South Wales. We want to iron out the kinks, make sure that it works, make sure we've got all the security appropriately um, addressed as well. But, you know, this is absolutely something that we could put across the rest of Australia, if not broader. And we have already had some initial conversations and inquiries with, with you know, Queensland and, and Victorian stakeholders, WA even, and there's actually been some internationals that have, um, have seen some of the media and have, have reached out of, out of interest. So I guess not yet, but we absolutely see there's benefit in this in this tool um, being applied with other data sets from other jurisdictions being plugged into it as well. Yeah, okay, that's um, that's quite exciting to hear, and no doubt we'll keep a watching brief on that. I I just want to pick up the the topic of data. What's the plan? Where's your headspace with respect to privately held data assets, and does the private sector come to the table at all maybe share your musings around sort of blending public and private sector data assets together yeah i think the, the obviously one that comes to mind for me is, is some of the telco data um, and i think from a planning perspective some of that mobility information is a bit of a holy grail for, for government i think that there's absolutely some private sector opportunities here i think you know, speaking probably personally, I should say, um, maybe not the department, but I absolutely sort of don't see this as being some sort of a huge profit generating tool for the government. I mean, if it's something that can cover its costs and it can continue to develop in that respect, that's great. But just sort of want to put that out there. We're not going into this with a full on commercial mindset to, mm. to maximize, you know, we're, we're government, we're not, we're not a private sector entity. In saying that, I think where it makes sense for us to partner with a corporate, a data provider like a be like a Telstra or someone else that has information like that, you know, 100%. Because what this enables is it's effectively a gateway for those providers to distribute their access to a whole bunch of other users. And if I think about, you know, within the landmark queue at the moment, we currently have Aerometrics providing the high-resolution spatial data that's in the platform. That's done on a subscription basis. So in my mind, it's a very similar approach where you're plugging in another data set. We can work out the commercials you know, sort of independently, but from a user's perspective, they don't need to see that. They just they get the product for a, a license cost and it includes these features in it too. So I think, you know, there's probably a, an element of, of security that needs to, I mean, I know I keep saying that word, but it is something that's very front of mind um, because we have a trial at the moment with some of the Western Sydney councils in Land IQ and most of the data we have is, is open data, but there is some data in there at the moment that is state government only. And so we've had to make sure that that's all, Cleared away before we made that available. I guess it would be a similar thing for any other user group that came in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose, you know, the summary there is technically, yeah, again, 
that the platform doesn't discriminate of public or private sector assets, which is which is good. Just on, you mentioned local government, James. We often like to, well, from a theoretical perspective, we like to sort of say things like data is a great glue that can bring people together and we can exchange and work on problems. Can you can you share maybe a few little nuggets around the experience in the human part of this, planners and engineers and uh, others within government who are, you know, using the platform? How has this maybe, you know, driven better collaboration behaviours during the planning process, so on and so forth? Any observations mm-hmm. that you, you'd note there? Yeah, I think probably a couple again, a couple of key ones. So I guess within state government, everyone would probably like to believe that everything works in harmony and everyone's, you know, sharing information, but that's just not the reality in most most of the instances. So I think one of the areas we're seeing this break down some of the barriers is often if you look at the life cycle of a project, that's from initial planning through to design delivery and so forth. Oftentimes, you know, information or work is repeated again because either there's a lack of trust or people like doing it their own certain way. And so the initial planners will hand something off to the design team. They'll just completely redo the whole work for the expense too, right? So what we're seeing Land IQ do is because we can have users at multiple points in that in that um, process, that we're getting less of that rework and things mm-hmm. are going through from stage to stage um, in a much more efficient way. So that, I guess, is one way of thinking about the collaboration within, within a, a value chain. The other is with the councils. And what's really been interesting to me is to see how something like Land IQ or any any tool for matter, that matter where you've got multiple councils, multiple levels of government in it, is you, know, you can really break down those artificial boundaries, those LGA boundaries, where you know in the past, one council might have looked at their own boundary and said, look, we're going to do planning for this area. And the neighbouring council might do a similar exercise and you end up where the roads don't align at the, at the boundary, just to use a, a real example that has happened recently. I think the real opportunity here is being able to look at the entire space or the entire state, whatever you want to call it, as one and reduce those barriers both between councils but also between state and local. And I think anecdotal, but historically there has been what I've seen have been a bit of a barrier in terms of information flow and trust that information that's flowing between state and local levels. And yeah, at the end of the day, we're all government. You know, We're all involved in the same system. So the more that we can make that flow of information seamless, you know, it's it's only going to speed up the planning system and speed up and I guess get better outcomes if you have this initial agreement around what's the right data, what's the approach, how are we going to assess this? And there isn't the you know the potential issues that come when you have this disaggregated systems. James, last question. I I often think that scale and replication and acceleration are attributes of something really sticking and being successful. Can you share some final thoughts around how you turn the dial up? Have you assessed use so far as being pretty good? Would you like more? How how would you do that? Give me a sense of, you know, making sure Land IQ is getting that to that point of being institutionalized and mm. it's just the, the go-to as appropriate. Yeah, that's a good question. It's very topical. So we've, through this pilot version of it, I guess we being the department have developed and funded the tool and access for a certain number of of users. It's not a big number. We, I guess in order for that to scale to a point that it becomes 
embedded or, or, or I guess part of the um, part of the furniture, so to speak, for for the government or other users, there needs to be a level of investment to get it to that point. And the hurdle that we need to get over in terms of, you know, if I'm a user and I'm going to pay for this tool, it's because I've realized, I've quantifiably realized the benefits from this and I'm willing to change my my processes and systems in order to do that. So we think there's there's a pretty modest investment required to both increase the number of users and polish some of the functions that we have at the moment so that it, it becomes an absolute no-brainer for the user base to say, I'd rather spend, pick a number, 10 grand on this versus 100 grand on the way I used to do it before, right? Now, it's a bit of a hard pill to swallow and it's been something that has been challenging with, with the likes of, of Treasury and, the, and others, you know, that whole spend to save. I think with a new government in place, the focus on land use, housing, and also the, the focus on cutting things like um, extra expenditure or consultants if we don't need to, I think it's a perfect storm for us at the moment. And we are seeing some really good traction, but I think there just needs to be a commitment. I think the other point I would make is that there's there's a bit of a proliferation of this, this type of tools, data systems, and some of the feedback we've had from the councils has been like, this is fantastic, but we just need the government to say, this is the tool for this purpose yeah. and, we're, and we're going to, and we're going to commit to this for the next four or five years yeah. because what we don't want to do is invest time and money. And then in 18 months it falls over and something else is there. And, you know, so it's a combination of, I think, leadership from the government and commitment, but also putting the investment in, in, in order to fully establish the, the system. Well, just on that word you just used then, James, leadership, it's certainly uh, it's certainly in spades down in New South Wales, I can I can tell you that. So really appreciate your your time today. Um, congratulations on on getting this up and running and going uh, to you, the broader team, and of, of course the the department. From the private sector perspective, we love it when we see things like this, you know, government getting serious, investing in digital transformation and plan tech and transforming our planning processes, as you rightly say, you know, upfront, you know, there's so, so much efficiency to be gained there um, so that we can sort of reinvest down the pipeline. So um, been a fascinating conversation, really looking forward to tracking uh, the, the the journey. And um, James, uh, once again, thanks so much for joining us on the Urban Life Enabled podcast. Great. Thanks, Adam. Well, we hope you like this episode of Urban Life Enabled. Remember, if you'd like to subscribe, head to your favourite podcast platform. You'll find us there. Just search for Urban Life Enabled. You can also head along to our website to listen to all of our episodes and also find out more information about Life Enabled. Just head to the website lifeenabled.com. There's a hyphen between life and enabled. Thanks for joining us.